This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? The podcast that promises to fight against the invasion of our politics by idiots crossing over illegally from the far right in their inflatable egos. On this week's edition, economists are warning of a doom loop following the Bank of England's forecast of prolonged recession and interest rate rises. But don't worry, I'm sure it's nothing another 10 years of austerity won't fix. Plus, Suella Braveman takes a Chinook helicopter to the Manston Detention Centre to survey, from a suitable height, migrants being treated appallingly on her instructions. And the curse of the reality show claims another MP. Matt Hancock is heading to the jungle for the latest series of I'm the subject of a public inquiry, get me out of here. Can he atone for thousands of care home deaths by sleeping in a hammock for a couple of weeks? Who's to say? Let's meet our esteemed panel. First up, Tom Peck is the sketch writer at The Independent. Hi, Tom. Hiya, how are you doing? At PMQs last week, Rishi Sunak raised Jeremy Corbyn several times. Mm. In response a couple of days later, Corbyn suggested that he was living rent-free in Rishi Sunak's head. <laughs> is, this, is this Tory nostalgia for gentler politics, do you think, Tom? Or is Jezza still a useful pressure point? Well, I think that Dominic Cummings and co's little focus groups uh, until such a time that they were still going on suggested that Jeremy Corbyn is still very unpopular and that trying to portray Starmer as some kind of closet Corbynista might work for them. And Rishi Sunak, not long in the job, hasn't really had time to come up with with any better ideas, right? I mean, I don't think it works. Every time they say Corbyn was an IRA sympathiser, Keir Starmer just says, well, I prosecuted IRA terrorists. And whatever they say about Corbyn, Starmer just says, well, I kicked him out of the party. So, you know, I can't see it with any certainty and say that these this attempt to portray Starmer as a closet Corbynista. I mean, Boris Johnson called him a, a Corbynista in an Islington suit at one point, didn't he? Which is about the most stupid insult I've ever heard in my life. But I can't say with any certainty that, that the mud won't sort of partially stick. It may do. If you keep this stuff up for long enough, um, it works. But I think the Tories know that they've lost, they're completely lost on immigration. They're lost on the economy. They appear to be lost on national security. And currently, it's the best they've got. Um, I don't think it will work, but it's the, certainly the best that they've got. PMQs last week was really rather striking. I can't remember a Labour opposition hammering the Conservative government like this on the economy, immigration and defence for quite some years now. Um, Marie Leconte writes about politics for The Independent and The New Statesman and many, many books. Hi, Marie. Hello. We're now 11 days into Elon Musk's golden takeover of Twitter. And it's going so well that he's been described as a supply teacher who's lost control of the class. Have you paid up your uh, $8 blue tick, Marie? Um, so I am, in fact, a woman of the people. and I've never had a blue tick. You've never had a tick at all? I've never had all. a blue tick. No, again, no, every follower I've had, you know, from the sweat on my forehead, I've worked, I've toiled <laughs> for each and every one of them. So uh, how do you think it's going for Elon? It's not. And, and, and I know that's going to sound like I sort of shoot, I'm shoehorning that in for the purpose of the podcast, but really not. I think that it has honestly felt like watching the first few days of List Trust. Um, you know, <laughs> and in that sense, of, and actually, you know, being and characteristically sort of, you know, fair to both Elon Musk and List Trust, like, there are problems both with the country of Britain and the website Twitter um, <laughs> that do need to be addressed. And I think some of the solutions they're, you know, proposing were proposing and not and entirely completely stupid. But the way they're going about it is mental. And the speed <laughs> with which they're doing it as well is completely fucking bonkers. Um, oh, and, and, I love and, that. Yeah. Elon <laughs> Musk, the Liz Truss of social media. <laughs> no, but, but, but it's also, and I think, Perhaps more importantly, and obviously with this trust, we know how that ended, but it does feel like waking up every day and thinking, okay, this is either going to 
come crashing down incredibly quickly, as in, you know, by nightfall, there will no longer be a Twitter, <laughs> or somehow nothing really will have changed and we'll still be whinging about this in a year's time and somehow no in between. Finally, Satpir Singh is the former chief executive of the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants and current managing director at Open Democracy. Welcome back to the show, Satpir. Hello. Open Democracy published a report this week into behind-the-scenes lobbying by housing associations for government not to cap social rents too low. Now, is this scandalous, or is it a fair enough point that the more of a gap that opens between private rents and social housing, the bigger the pressure on the latter? It's a bit of both, and it, it boils down to that basic problem, which is that our housing system doesn't work. So if you've got social landlords or housing associations who are similarly facing rising costs, both of the property itself, maintaining it, utilities, all the rest of it, Mm. and you've got councils which are underfunded, unable to provide them with the income to match that, they've got to make ends meet somehow. Everybody's being squeezed there. And at the end of it, you've got people who are living in unsustainable housing and now essentially being forced out of it because of the rises in those rents. Mm, mm. Um, It was a pretty rotten system uh, from end to end. And I think we're at the foothills of just how bad it's going to get over the next couple of years. I mean, we've talked about the housing crisis for a long time, and I don't really think we've seen anything yet compared to what's to come. Now, before we move on, a special announcement. Yes, Virginia, there is a No God What Now Christmas live show this year. And for a change, we're playing a cosier, more intimate, more Christmassy venue than usual. A No God What Now Unplugged, if you will, where you will be able to see us all up close and personal, perhaps even touches. It's happening at the lovely new venue 21 Soho near Tottenham Court Road on Monday the 12th of December at 7pm. So get your Christmas jumper out of mothballs. I'll be there with Roz, Naomi and host Dorian to look back at a scarcely believable year in British politics, trying to remember the name of that strange woman who was in charge in September. And of course, we'll be answering your questions too. Tickets are strictly limited and Patreon people have already had a head start and discounted rates, so get yours now. There's a link in the show notes or go to 21-soho.com and find us, appropriately for UK politics at the moment, under the Comedy tab. That's Monday the 12th of December at 7pm. We ho-ho hope to see you there. First up, on Thursday last week, the Bank of England revealed its latest prognosis for the UK economy, and it wasn't good. Base interest was raised by 75 points to 3%, the biggest single rise since 1989. I had a flock of seagulls haircut then. And the recession that began this summer is now expected to last until 2024, the longest in 100 years. And all because of what Andrew Bailey described as a UK premium after recent instability, whatever could he be referring to? Having pushed back their autumn statement, a highly movable feast of late, to the 17th of November, Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt would love to be squirrelled away in Downing Street figuring out what's left to cut, but a U-turn, another one, has taken Sunak to Egypt for COP27. Marie, Sunak and Hunt are warning of difficult decisions, which is code for cuts, right? Yet with Hunt at the helm, it seems unthinkable the NHS budget would shrink significantly. The triple lock is a manifesto pledge. One Nation Tories are insisting on operating benefits in line with inflation. Red Wall MPs are immovable on levelling up. And Ben Wallace will walk out if defence is cut. That's a lot of big-ticket items out of the reckoning. Is Sunak completely boxed in? What will he cut? Oh, I have no idea, and I'm very happy I'm not him or anyone in the Treasury right now. But I think... So I think what will be interesting, actually, is 
because that, that will be really the first test of his leadership. And I think I was personally quite surprised in the you know very short, teeny tiny leadership contest how quickly Conservative MPs actually decided to fall behind him and said, "Okay, fine, 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 fine." Um, <laughs> you know, no, but in that way that, that I, I, you know, in cards on the table very early on, I thought it would be Penny Morden because I assumed she would be more of a unity candidate because Rishi had been so divisive over the mm. summer. They fell behind him, and I think. If Rishi Sunak manages to play this well, he can just say, listen, like you did, you know, you wanted me, this is what you're getting, like, especially looking at kind of internal party management. But, you know, can he do that? Because if, if there's one thing we know about him from his tenure as chancellor is that he folds quite quickly. You know, he likes a U-turn, but also he, he sort of very obviously panics quite quickly, even if you can't, you know, even if you never quite get, you know, television shots of him panicking. So I remember like, all the stuff about his wife's tax affairs, mm. every single quote from like him, people around him, etc., just sounded like you could feel an aura of panic around <laughs> him and sweat. Um, and, and, and that is the thing I would be worried about, you know, if I were him, no matter what choices he ends up making, because he will piss off a section of the parliamentary party, whatever he does, probably several portions at the same time. Can he deal with that? I'm not convinced. Mm. From what I hear, he was uh, giving a statement outside COP27 today, and he said about uh, uh, zero emissions that the, he's committed to the target, the, not necessarily the timing. Um, and from other statements I've heard, it looks like green stuff, capital investment and education will get hammered. Well, I, for one thing, that's great. Because I think, if anything, teachers have too much money. Schools have too much. If there's one thing reading the papers over the past few years, really, is I think the education sector is just swimming in cash, which is just... You but know, there's a obscene. pattern there, isn't there? That it's like, this is future stuff. Don't spend money on future stuff. It's so counterintuitive and countercyclical because that's exactly what you're supposed to be spending money on. That's exactly what you're supposed to be borrowing to spend on at the bottom of the economic cycle. But they will... Yeah, the planet. They, they will not do that. Guys. Yeah. <laughs> Mary Sunak doesn't seem engaged with anything except the economy. What attention is being paid to other policy areas? Do basically other departments have a free reign or is he just not interested? Oh, that's an interesting question. So I wonder, I mean, you know, and I think I completely agree. I don't think we've heard that much about other departments at the moment, apart from obviously the Home Office, not in a good way. And also we've heard quite a lot about Gavin Williamson, who, which I still love, like whose job, we still don't really know what it is. No one's really explained in number no. 10 what Gavin Williamson is doing, apart from being Gavin Williamson in the way that Peter Mandelson used to be Peter Mandelson as a title. A Sir Gavin um, Williamson to so, you. Sorry, my bad, my bad. Can only apologise, Sir Gav. Um, but no, so I, I wonder if that's not the case actually of figuring out first, so getting that statement out the way and seeing exactly where the cuts are falling and from there the departments can reasonably say actually we can afford to do this or that would be my she quite straight down the line answer of they need to see you know who gets yeah. the cash or who doesn't get the this cash. This or that being very little I would imagine. Um, Tom, financial U-turns have been quite a thing for recent Prime Ministers. I remember Cameron and the Omnishambles budget, May on the dementia tax, Johnson on pretty much everything, trust on her mini budget. So backbenchers, opponents and the media know that if they press on something, it can be reversed. Does this make fiscal announcements much more politically unpredictable than in the past? Well, as as with all financial um, discussion, the previous past past returns are no guide to the future. There's no, I don't think there's any guarantee that um, Rishi Sunak is necessarily going to be strongly um, is going to bow to pressure from a particular faction of his party or another. As you were just saying, he is really very, very, very interested, solely interested in the economy. Really, I think he will feel far more. You know, Marie was talking about how whatever whenever confronted with difficulties, he just panics. I suspect he might find himself panicking less if it comes to the subject of the economy, where I think he backs himself and won't necessarily be swayed by by one faction of the party or another putting pressure on him. But it's, it's early days, isn't it? The, the, the statement is on the 17th of November. I do not think there will be many... It will take a while. Obviously, Rishi Sunak has put his cabinet together trying to like reassemble the Tory party in the way that you reassemble a mug that you've dropped, you know, like you, um, and then sort of pretend that it's all fine when it's not, when it can just be broken again very quickly. But I feel that like on the economy, given time, 
I do not think he will necessarily be pushed around by the Conservative Party to do one thing or another. I think he will back himself. And I think he probably realises that the country, rightly or wrongly, have some confidence in his economic judgment. Right. But a lot of that stuff is tangentially related to the economy. So the Telegraph reported last week that they're planning a raid on capital gains tax. Businesses immediately said that will affect investments. State capital investment is an easy target for cuts too. What's the danger here that after the Kwarteng episode, the Treasury pendulum swings too far from profligacy to thrift, basically, and we make a two-year recession into a a four-year recession? Well, that is a neat encapsulation of the challenge Rishi Sunak faces. It, it remains to be seen if he will be good at it or not. Uh, I suspect he will, you know, he didn't want to go to COP27, did he? Because he was because he would rather be squirreled away worrying about the 17th of November statement. I actually think that's quite admirable politics. I think maybe he feels that he doesn't want to do stuff for show and he will concentrate on where he can have the most um, effect on outcomes. Naturally, he knows very clearly that the, cha- the challenge he faces is closing the 50 billion black hole in a way that doesn't extend the recession we will have to see if he could pull it off it's not an easy job to do but i don't see anybody else in the conservative party who would be a superior candidate to him to have a go at it yeah i mean i think that's quite a kind interpretation because he doesn't seem to lack the time for a photo opportunity at any point so maybe saving the planet is not that unworthy a cause um sad beer <laughs> Extending the windfall tax on oil and gas companies seems to be a no-brainer. It's just hanging there for someone to pick. But in a government largely motivated by what seems to me to be vibes, will they do it if it means appearing like they caved into the opposition? I think they will struggle to do it for exactly that reason. It's difficult for them to concede really any ground there where they could be accused of caving to the opposition. But then again, they've got form. They U-turn on pretty much everything and somehow still manage to move beyond that, somehow still manage to have the gall almost to claim like these were their ideas to begin with. I wouldn't put it past the Prime Minister to do something like that and actually claim that it was his idea to begin with. And call um, it something other than... And call windfall. it something other than a windfall tax, yeah. a gasfall tax, because we know that they don't like wind, <laughs> um, apart from at the dispatch box. What about Labour? I mean, Starmer's further left MPs are pushing for some radicalism. They're saying, I think with some logic behind it, that while their star is high and their competence in the economy is on their rise, now is the time to sort of press slightly more reformative measures. Is is it the time for action or is that a big elephant trap? I think it absolutely is. I mean, you've got a situation which, from the outside friends in America and in other places look at this and and, and saying that this is absolutely bizarre. You've got a government that is polling at 20-25% that is nonetheless pushing ahead with more and more radical proposals, Mm. whether it's on the economy, human rights, migration, borders, education reform, the rest of it. And you've got, you know, what calls itself a government in waiting that's polling at between 40 and 55% and by all accounts looks set to win at the next election, barring some huge upset between now and then, the Mm, question mm. seems to be, will they be a plurality, a majority or a landslide? That is actually, if anything, more timid in recent days. And it's almost as if there's a fear of using that, using that authority. And I think it, it may be that Starmer is struggling in the same way that Sunak is, that he's got a coalition to hold together. And being a bit more bold and being a bit more radical could actually mean 10 different things within his party Mm -hmm. right now. There is no one faction to the left of him that says, you know, push a bit more in this way. So I think for him, the easiest thing to do is to just tread water and and to just just sort of go just with do the, the flow Biden, of it. basically yeah, do the just Biden. go and disappear in a basement somewhere and let the the other side exactly lose the country. Um, Marie Boris Johnson showed up at COP twenty seven today, anointing himself the ghost of COP past uh, and pledging to be Sunak's conscience. <laughs> 
I mean, <laughs> can you think of the worst person to be anyone's conscience? No, well, I mean, it, it, it is that terrible state of affairs, isn't it? Where actually, so Boris is being incredibly annoying and refusing to be quiet, but also reminding the Conservatives they should be greener and also that we need to keep helping Ukraine. So this is one of those just like, ah, oh, this is unbelievably annoying, but he's right to say it. I hate it, but fine, he's right to say it. And actually, annoyingly, a fair few Conservatives are likely to listen to him. So again, I mean, and I think, you know, the man's an artist. Like He's managed after everything to make me say publicly, it's good what he's doing like, after everything. So I hate him more than ever. I know. I, I understand what you're saying. I just can't quite reconcile him as a sort of Jiminy Cricket to Sunak's Pinocchio. Um, he's conscious, but he knows what he's doing. Oh, God, the, yeah. Yes. Um, um, Tom, politically, I think it was essential for this government to look like a clean start, right? Another clean start. Do you think it has achieved this or or do the Williamson and Braverman appointments and subsequent fallout tie Sunak to an existing pattern? Well, of course they do. It couldn't, he couldn't have got off to a worse start, really. He comes out and says, we're going to be the government of professionalism, accountability. And I forget what the other what the, other, the third word was. Um, people like me immediately panic because we think, oh, God, the age of permanent farce is over. But of course, it absolutely 100% is not. Um, you have on day one, I mean, what was what did we have on last Monday? You have the actual Home Secretary standing at the dispatch box saying, well, I took responsibility for what I did wrong and I resigned. Yet she's still standing there as Home Secretary. I mean, that is as, that is as pure a farce as anything we had in the Johnson years or the trust weeks. Or, the, or I mean, it's just absolutely perfect. So he can't, this idea that he started again, that things are different, you can't just say that. You have to actually deliver that. And if you've had to put to your cabinet together by piecing all the wreckage of the last few years together just to keep everyone happy, well, you can't obviously get off to a fresh start. I mean, he's only got two years. It may be that he's burned his way through these farcical weeks relatively quickly. He's given some reasons to sack Suella Braverman. He's already got it. Um, and then he delivers and gets rid of her and hopes that these problems go away. Uh, the Gavin Williamson stuff is a joke. I mean... You can't you can't do what he's done and expect things to be different. You can only hope that in a while you can rebuild again and the deals you had to do to make yourself prime minister, you can undo. But he really, really, really doesn't have very long anyway. I mean, I'm prepared to make a bet. He's not going to be prime minister in just over two years time. So he needs to, like, stop making a fool of himself as soon as he possibly can. Good leaders need a narrative to carry people with them. Labour isn't working. New Labour forward, not back, vote for change, strong and stable, even get Brexit done, as loathsome and misleading as it was. They were compelling stories. What can Sunak reach for? What's the story he can tell? I mean, the narrative that he wants to tell, which is a sensible one to attempt to tell, and I don't I don't wish to repeat verbatim my previous answer, but it's that I'm in charge now. I am not Boris Johnson. I'm not, I'm not Liz Truss. The carnage ends. I am a nice, polite, sensible chap. You can look to me for careful stewardship of the economy. Things will be different. He does have that sort of, he does have that thing about him that Cameron had, which is the sort of, you know, you'd want to have him as a flatmate. You, you, you want him to, he's, to he's, a, he's a leader who sort of feels like he's on your side and he's your pal and he's good at bringing people together. And that is what he can do. But he's also only really got two years. As you were just saying, the Bank of England forecast almost the entirety of his premiership to be a recession. So it doesn't really bode very well if your big thing is I'm the economic safe pair of hands, but also I am the permanent recession prime minister. And also I'm things going back to the way they were before. But also I've got these absolute agents of chaos in my cabinet that are going to bring me down with their own stupidity at a second's notice. So the obvious narratives he wants to tell aren't really available to him. And I think he'll struggle to come up with a different one. Mm. Uh, listener, you can't um, tell this, obviously, but when I was asking what sort of narrative he can reach for, Marie actually had her hand up. So <laughs> what do you think? I have made that point before. I will keep making it again and again until he does it. I think Rishi Sunak should brand himself Britain's first prime minister, who's also a sugar baby. Like, that's all I okay. want. He's, yeah. Okay. I, I think inspirational, you know, post-feminist, post-gender society, I think the first male sugar baby, he's got a sugar mummy, and I think that's neat. Oh, I, there you well, go. Yeah. Rishi, um, if you're listening. Yeah. 
I mean, Macron, I really Macron enjoyed... broke that duck, didn't he? No, she's not rich, though. Oh, right, I see. Oh, yes, but the the age difference, I guess, is there. No, but that's not... Oh, my, do you even know what a sugar baby is, Alex? Um, Yeah, I mean, it's a long time for me <laughs> since it was an area of interest, <laughs> since it was a possible career. But, yes, I've, I'm vaguely aware of it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Next, Suella Braveman is treating the current migrant crisis on the South Coast like her own personal version of Top Gun. The Home Secretary took a Chinook helicopter 30 miles to the Manston Detention Centre last week, a continuation on the theme of warfare against small boats arriving across the Channel. 24 hours after the firebombing of a Dover Immigration Centre, Braveman described the crisis as an invasion and a scourge. So determined was she to return numbers at Manston to a more acceptable level that she ended up dumping two busloads of asylum seekers in the middle of Victoria Coach Station with nowhere to go by mistake. Meanwhile, Grant Shapps, who was Home Secretary for a record five days last month, distinctly failed to defend the current Home Secretary's attitude. Satbir, Suella Braveman thinks the asylum system is broken. We agree, <laughs> just not in the same way that she thinks. Um, how has it got to this? Oh, where do we begin? Yes. Um, let's start with a, a very simple fact. The number of asylum claims in the UK has remained pretty flat for the last 10 years, yeah. despite conflicts, climate crisis, the number of people claiming asylum here has remained pretty constant since around 2010-2011. The backlog, the number of people waiting for a decision to be made, has grown exponentially. In 2014, nearly 90% of claims saw a decision made within six months. Hmm. By the same time in 2021, it had fallen to 6%. Why? Chronic underinvestment in a system which is clearly very important, a decision about whether a person is provided safety, sanctuary or sent back to somewhere where they might be at risk seems to be a pretty important function of the state. Underinvestment. What drives that underinvestment? Well, first, we've had obviously several rounds of austerity, but we've also got a political culture in which when you're Home Secretary or when you're the Immigration Minister grandstanding and policy innovation, crazy things like wave machines in the channel and detention facilities on cruise ships are somehow more attractive, more deserving of your attention than actually just getting one of the most important departments of government working and doing its job well. That's boring stuff for your civil servants. We don't bother but, with that. OK, but this is a bit that I don't understand. It, you know, it would cost a lot less money to just hire a bunch of people, and it would be a much bigger win to be able to point to the backlog and say, look, in one year, I've reduced it to zero. We've expedited every single decision. And because we did that, we actually saved money because we're not paying for hotels and people can work, they can contribute to tax, etc., etc. So why is that fruit that low, low-hanging fruit not picked. Well, that leads us to the second part of the story. So you've got that first bit, which is about just kind of ranking competence and underinvestment. But you've also got to remember that if we, if we brought that backlog down, if we provided the right sort of infrastructure routes for people to claim asylum properly, for this to not be a visible problem in the way that it is, who the hell are the government going to blame for everything? Where is this crisis going to come from? In in the 80s, in the 70s and 80s, there was a, a really measurable softening of attitudes towards migration in the US. People became 
a lot more welcoming, a lot more accepting of the fact that migration had been a net positive. That coincided with the beginning of a, a quite deliberate strategy among Republican strategists and politicians to draw everybody's attention to the border, to the southern border, point at people walking across the Rio Grande. It's evocative. It's emotive. Mm. Actually, I think it was with you, Marie, a few years ago. I remember talking to you about a piece um, that you were writing about the the fall in salience of immigration. Oh, yes, I remember that. <clears throat> Brexit. So I remember that piece really well, and that was actually really interesting. So I wrote a piece a few years ago on the fact that people, and it was one of those weird, quiet changes that no one really talked about. So I think I wrote this in 2017, 2018, where people just no longer really cared about immigration. Um, and, you know, in the way that, you know, the salience had fallen way down. And I remember talking to, obviously, lots of people, including Satbeer, but one of them, who I thought was really interesting, so a Conservative MP who made the point of saying, actually, you know, for an area that that had uh, seen a lot of immigration from especially Eastern Europe, and his point was that, you know what, this may be optimistic, but maybe people just got used to it. So that first, actually, the numbers were quite high and the mm-hmm. town did change quite a bit. And obviously, so that that was, you know, for a few years, people cared a lot about that. But then, you know, eventually they started going to the Polish shops and they got to know some of their Polish neighbours and it's broadly fine now. Mm. So the question for people who thrive and whose politics thrives on that animosity at that point, 2017-18, is how the hell do we get people scared about this again? Um, and I, I remember I used to do periodically breakfast radio interviews with BBC Radio Kent. And there was a producer who'd call me and say, we need somebody to come on to balance this story out. And it would always be the local MP. It was, you know, the Elphicks. Um, I can't remember who the first one was, but then Charlie. the second one. Yeah. Charlie. Um, Natalie. Elphick. And now Natalie Elphick. And it was a story that began in regional and local news and gradually became this attractive proposition for home secretaries that culminated in Sajid Javid a few years ago, flying back from his holiday to apparently single-handedly turn back the tide. Mm. Um, And now we are where we are today, where the rhetoric has ramped up so much. You've got alt-right, far-right groups which mobilise on the ground and online against what they call an invasion. And then you've got a home secretary who stands at the dispatch box and this sort of pound shop fascist the day after a terrorist attack on a centre in which there are vulnerable children and families, says this is an invasion. I'm not shocked, but if I was to take a step back and say five years ago, would I have expected us to be here today? I would have said no. I'm afraid uh, it's all too familiar to me because I've kind of lived through the golden dawn, um, sort of early 2010s trend in Greece where there were doing pretty much the same thing. And I only hope that it resolves itself as well as that did because they basically hit a ceiling and then dropped off. Um, Marie, has Braverman actually been a very effective lightning rod, shielding Sunak and his bevy of incompetent and nasty ministers from criticism? Yes, I think it's actually... There's an argument here... Um, in which you could say that actually Suella Braverman is quite good there because they need a nutter at the Home Office anyway, but Mm. also she's clearly incompetent enough and has clearly made enough mistakes that she is entirely expendable. You know, so so I think if she does need to get sacked eventually, that will happen. And I think... So they could use her as a flak jacket for as long as they need and then just... Basically, and, and, you know, and I think a number of people noticed the fact that Robert Jenrick, who is a close ally and friend of Rishi Sunak, uh, was put in as a minister of state just below her. And and I have no idea, you know, if that will happen or not, but the thinking does seem to be that when she has to go, you know, they can maybe just elevate him quite Mm -hmm. smoothly, you know, safe in the knowledge that she will probably not stay in that job for very long. Is there a bit of truth that actually the Braverman narrative of an invasion by Albanian criminals has been very successful. And, and, you know, much of it has been fed by our collective progressive outrage. We cannot ignore the Home Secretary using just fascist language and imagery. But the more we talk about it, the more we feed it. How do we break that fucking cycle? So that's a very good question. I'm not entirely sure how you do that when like swathes of the media are so anti-immigration and actually many politicians as well, especially uh, prominent ones are very anti-immigration as well. So, so I think because ideally what you want is kind of 
you know, to be able to ignore those people and to try and create your own narratives, I think. You know, so A, I think fact check obviously a lot of stuff, but also create, yeah, again, positive narratives and explain why people are coming, why it's good that they're coming, you know, if they are here, etc. But But again, the problem is how, you know, how do you effectively do that when, you know, few, few people would probably publish it. The Labour Party, I think, has not been, it's fair to say, as pro-immigration, as pro-refugees as it could be. Um, so, you know, w- without that firepower, I'm not entirely sure how you create and promote those narratives. Um, Tom, you, you may disagree. I find that right-wing press coverage of the crisis has been pretty grotesque, even by their standards. Um that awful spectator cover is a particularly egregious example. The BBC reporter for Kent that Zatbeer was talking about described the UK, and I quote, defending itself on the front line against migrants. That's the BBC describing it as a sort of war. Is there something systemic that means journalism feeds escalation? I don't, I don't think the, the right-wing press especially feel like they have got a case to answer for as far as that particular brand of journalism goes. I mean, they're not ashamed of their record. They are completely proud of it. I mean, you are, what their, their, their aim is to pressure the government into adopting a, a, a policy a bit like Australia's, where they, what they want is to see Royal Navy boats going into the channel and dragging these dinghies back where they came from, which is exactly what the Australians did with boats coming from Indonesia a long time ago, and it complete, and eventually the, the debate was completely normalised. So that became a, a completely normal thing for even left wing politicians to, to discuss. Um, you know, I, I was I was knocking on doors with Jacob Rees Mogg in Somerset in 2015, when a guy came up to him with a copy of the Sun under his arm, and it was during the Mediterranean crisis. And he said to to, to Jacob, you know, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm glad that they're drowning. I mean, this guy was a dreadful, disgusting human being. And to give Jacob Rees-Mogg his dues, he, he did tell him as much in his own way. He said that you can't say things like that. It's appalling. But this was shortly after the Katie Hopkins cockroaches stuff, which, in fairness, she did um, get sacked for um, directly. Um, but with the thing is, we've just, we've, as a country, we've never been capable of having a sensible debate on immigration and asylum. And I think partly it's just, just to do with being an, an island. And I think we're susceptible to this feeling of being invaded, and I think that we also just think that we're better than Johnny, Johnny Foreigner. And I think that is mainly to do with the language more than anything else. But I don't think you should expect the Sun, the Spectator, the Mail or the Express to, to feel like they've got anything to atone for with regards to ramping up the rhetoric. And also these days, when migrants drown in the channel, as they have been doing, these newspapers feel vindicated because they think they've been trying to stop the problem, whereas lefties think the boats should just come and come. I mean, lefties don't actually think that. They think there needs to be safe routes. Um, but but you never really get into the detail of the debate. You're not allowed to. But I don't I don't think there's anyone at the Sun or the Spectator, at least um, in significant positions of editorial direction, who are awake at night worrying about their contribution to, to the debate. I think they're proud of it. The Home Office is considered a bit of a sort of political poison chalice, um, and abolishing and shifting around departments is isn't rare. Um, I, I was amused to find out the Home Office used to be responsible for broadcasting and slaughterhouses is another one. Um, <laughs> is there a structural solution you think that might improve the situation? Would separating immigration out completely just at least clarify that brief? Well, they did briefly attempt this mm. over the last year. We had the Ukrainian scheme and the I think the resettlement of British nationals from uh, British overseas nationals from Hong Kong moved out of the Home Office and into the Department for Leveling Up, and that was partly because it was assumed that the Home Office couldn't deliver, and also because the government wanted to do well and wanted to do right by those people. So I think at the heart of government, there's a recognition that if you want to do right by people who move here, you don't do it at the Home Office. And I I remember when Caroline Noakes was the immigration minister and, you know, she towed the party line on some pretty awful things. But I remember in meetings with her when you'd say, why can't the Home Office do X? Flanked by senior civil servants on both sides and sometimes by the Home Secretary, she would just look at you with these eyes as if to say, you can't do a fucking thing in this department. I want to. And, you know, blinking help me. Now now thankfully out of that, you know, in the in the in the political wilderness, she's she's giving interviews on broadcast news saying pretty much the same thing. That's a department where if you want to do good, it doesn't happen. 
by ramping up hysteria in this, is there a risk for the Conservative Party that unless they can show concrete progress, they are sowing a harvest that someone like Farage or Tice or Fox, either with an existing far-right outfit or a new one, can simply come along and harvest. I am kind of amazed they haven't, they haven't done that already, to be honest. So I think the interesting thing about this actually is that, so when I was at the Conservative Party conference uh, last month, God, it feels like it was years ago, but even kind of talking to MPs in different contexts and going to panels, etc., there does seem to be this worry, actually, that someone may come in from the right and actually, you know, kind of do a UKIP of not necessarily gaining any seats, but, you know, kind of cutting off the majority of lots of seats. But I don't really, I don't really see that happening. There's no figures. I think what we forget about Nigel Farage, for example, is that he was on the scene for absolutely years and years before he rose to any sort of meaningful prominence. And also, I think what made UKIP successful in that way was that actually quite a fair few conservative politicians decided to move, you know, to defect from the conservatives to UKIP. Mm. And I don't really see anyone doing that with any kind of new new party. So I think so I, I get the premise, and I've definitely heard that being discussed in conservative circles quite a bit. But for what it's worth, I don't really think um, it's a threat they should really be that concerned about. Mm. Tom, um, if Sunak is eventually forced to replace Braverman, will he go for someone less inflammatory like Jenrick or Tugendhat, or shift even more to the right? Because there is this instinct, isn't it, when you're losing and doing badly in the polls to sort of play a defensive bat. The question is whether replacing her requires yet another attempt at party management, right? Or if having won, he chooses now to consolidate a bit. Um, And it will depend on the specific circumstances of her departure, how much time has passed, whether he still feels he has obligations to like the howling mad monkeys on the right wing of the party. If he's going to pursue honest, accountable, professional government, and he really does have to, you hope that it won't have gone entirely unnoticed by him that thus far Chris Philp, for example, has taken every possible opportunity given to him to reveal himself to be hopelessly inadequate. But the thing is, and it's such a defining cause with regard to how we got to the place we're in, that the, 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 the Team Braverman, if you like, the Loon Squad, they've felt emboldened ever since they were empowered by Brexit. And before then, they kind of doubted themselves, and now they back themselves. And if you if he chooses to empower someone like Tom Tugendhat, someone who's maybe a bit closer to him, although Tom Tugendhat is not a Brexiteer in any way, shape or form, and Richard Sunak very much is, then you, it is a question of how much of his limited credit um, down at, if you try Twite West Bank, he can afford to, to burn through. So there were no re- easy options for him, really. Sadbeer, uh, Chris Philp says migrants had a bit of cheek for complaining of the conditions at Manston. Um, today, Monday, Jenrick um, said that, yes, we have to treat asylum um, applicants with decency, but we have also got to make it a disincentive for them to get... I I am struggling to reconcile how one can justify morally a a policy in which you accept these are made up in large part of people fleeing war and torture and persecution and at the same time saying, well, we can't treat them too decently because then more might come. I mean, Chris Philp has got a cheek to talk about anything, really. Yeah. There's a there's a sickness in in that language that that underlies so much of our politics as well. It's this idea that what we give as a society or as a state to people who need should be just enough, mm. and that the system must exist to make sure you only get just enough and the bare minimum. The entire system is built around the assumption that everybody is gaming it. And then when we allow people, I mean, we're not even talking about allowing people because we're interning them in these facilities. Yeah. And we're saying, you know, we'll put a roof over your head, but don't ask for more than that. They're in a facility where they are getting disease, where then they've got no access to medical care, where they've got no access to nutritious food, where there are children that can't go outside and play. And this is the sixth richest country in the world. Chris Philp, a man who's done more damage to the economy in his brief stint at the Treasury yeah. than, than a handful of people 
who are just trying to seek a better life, whether that's from war or from poverty, because I don't think that that distinction necessarily justifies the escalation in mistreatment that sure. you know politicians think it does. It's become so normalized to talk like that that you really have to take a step back and say, you ghastly people, how are you in government and how were you allowed to get away with treating people like this? I'd, I'd feel physically sick listening to, the, to, to things like that being said by ministers and, you know, my my grandparents would would say that the, the the best curse to offer them is you know may you live forever <laughs> may, may you one day realize how how truly horrid you are and may you have to sit with that for the rest of time that's harsh how yeah. old were you when they were telling you that <laughs> fucking hell Finally, Matt Hancock, the mini bounty bar of the celebrations box that is our cabinet, announced last week he'd be joining the cast of this year's I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. The jungle is a common place to resuscitate your career, Peter Andre, shot back to stardom after appearing on it, and host Ant McPartlin returned to the show after a conviction for drink driving. But what if you're a former bungling health secretary who resigned in disgrace following the country's least sexy sex scandal? Not so sure. Tom, um, Hancock says he's going on the show because he wants to help communicate important issues to the public, like his dyslexia campaign. <laughs> Do any such campaigns ever penetrate public consciousness through an entertainment format? Can you remember any politician on any of these shows pushing an actual policy? Well, well, look, he's only admitting... Um, he. I almost don't really want to even take him at face value. I mean, the idea that he's going on there to help out his dyslexia campaign, there is not a single person on earth who believes that, right? I wish there was something more interesting to say about all this, but what has happened is that Matt Hancock has been offered 400 grand to make a complete tit of himself, and presumably his rather sensible new partner has advised him that, well, everyone thinks already thinks you're a complete tit anyway, so why not take the money? I mean, the, the idea that... that and then we have to... Almost the most insulting bit of all is that it has to be accompanied by these ridiculous pre-done um, pre opinion pieces whereby he's going to where the voters really are, i.e. there's 12 million people watching all this stuff. Like... I say this with some trepidation, but seriously, mate, just fuck off, right? The, 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 if, if, if it's a question of whether or not he now looks out of touch, I would say no. There is not a single person in the country that doesn't understand that if someone offers you 400 grand for a three-week holiday with a load of celebrities, that yes, you take it. And that's sort of fine. The idea that it needs to be intellectualized any further than that, or that it says something profound about our politics, it just it's just Matt Hancock being Matt Hancock and someone very annoyingly paying him 400 grand to be Matt Hancock. And I wish they weren't, but they are. So we just have to enjoy it, really. Does some of this publicity um, work for this kind of soon-to-be-has-been politician, as it were? George Galloway still has half a million followers, um, even if he's labelled Russian state-affiliated media by Twitter. Would he have any of that clout without Celebrity Big Brother? Well, look, there's no hard and fast rule on this stuff, is there? I mean, I don't think Galloway's subsequent political achievements, and some of them were achievements, winning by-elections and stuff, I don't think they were aided by his having dressed up as a cat and drunk a saucer of milk. Um, they may have not have been harmed either. Um, thing is, politicians tend to do this stuff when they're already on the way out. I mean, Ed Ball's um, doing the Charleston with Catcher on primetime TV certainly didn't do him any harm, and it also helped launch a second career as a, as, a, as a sort of a TV celebrity, if you like. I mean, if you're sort of up and coming, then there's a chance that it can help you, but you rarely get the gig. Um, if this is Matt Hancock pivoting to TV, which we sort of know that it is because there's, this, there's now this row that he's screwed over celebrity SAS Who Dares Wins, which he was supposed to be filming next year, and they're angry about it. I mean, if Matt Hancock is now using this to become like the next Michael Portillo, then, then that's great, really, because if Richie Sunak does become a sort of boring um, professional politician, then there's going to need to be stuff for people like me to do. And if Matt Hancock is going to be making a complete wanker of himself on TV every week, then that's great. Um, perhaps the best example is Boris Johnson, whose stints on TV on Have I Got News For You, um, they really did help him establish himself back then. But then, you know, he was a journalist, um, a pundit, and as much as one hates the guy, 
um, possibly didn't hate him as much back then. And it's silly not to acknowledge that way back before all of his the horrors of his government, when he was just a columnist, he could be quite amusing on TV, provided you weren't exposed to it too often because the shtick does wear thin. So it can help you if you're a televisual, telegenic person, but Matt Hancock isn't. Yes, I think that's what it boils down to. If you if you are convinced you're going to come across well, as I think <laughs> Johnson and Ed Bowles must have been, then you go for it. If you are Matt Hancock, I suggest you avoid it. Marie, um, can there be better regulation of this MPs just taking second jobs or going off for weeks in to the Caribbean or on I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. I mean, the argument is always that if you, if they can't top up their income, we're going to lose people like Matt Hancock. And I'm thinking we could do without people like Matt Han- Hancock in the first place. Um, so I have three things to say, actually. The first one is that earlier you said the words Matt Hancock and penetrate in the same sentence. So I will need ten pounds <laughs> in a jar. Um, the second thing I would like to say is I would like to give credit to my friend Nikki Wolf, who's a fellow journalist and who's decided to rejoin the Matt Hancock app. So two birds, one stone with Twitter kind of falling over and Matt right, Hancock right. being in the news. So he's now calling himself a cockfluencer in the metaverse, <laughs> which I thought you guys would enjoy. Um, and finally, actually answering your question... I am going to be controversial here and say that I personally have no problem with MPs having second jobs as long as they're not, you know, stuff like lobbying for dodgy companies and using their contacts as MPs to kind of influence policy, etc. But, you know, for, for money. Because um, I think that... So actually the problem Well, they're is, all lobbying, though. I mean, what are they going to be? Are they going to go do a shift down the underground for a couple of nights a week? <laughs> <laughs> you know, what what sort of second job would you expect them to have other than know, sit like, on a board and... Some of them are doctors. We know, exactly. Some, some of them do have real jobs. I think, you know, Rosini Allen Khan still works um, no, in no, A&E and, you know, and Jeffrey Cox still a barrister. No, so my, my point is, and I think, you know, that I, I could go on about this for about half an hour, which I won't. But, um, but so we keep saying, things like oh god you know the caliber of politicians we have now is so much lower than it used to be and actually that's not entirely incorrect I think but part of the reason is because it kind of sucks to be an MP a lot of the time and if you want to keep as well if you want MPs to kind of get elected and become ministers you know junior ministers ministers cabinet ministers stick maybe even prime minister and stick around in the commons and kind of add the expertise and their experience and stuff you kind of need them to be able to do other stuff sometimes because, you know, otherwise it's not that attractive. You know, if you've done all these jobs and then you go back to the backbenches, it is actually kind of a rubbish job. And I I know the violin is very, very small here, but it's still there. So, no, I'm actually not inherently against second jobs. Mm. Um, Again, I'm sure controversially. Do you feel compelled to watch? Will you be... So very annoyingly, I do not have a television um, or the license fee, but I do have friends who live quite close to me and I have considered uh, inviting myself to their house to watch it. So you are intrigued. Yeah, of course. Okay. Satbeer, former I'm a Celeb winner, Danny Miller, um, has warned Hancock that the public will look to punish him for his record. Is this now the only recourse to justice we have left in this country, just hoping we get to humiliate former ministers by making them eat exotic offal? Oh, I mean, it's so bleak, isn't it? I feel like it falls upon me today to give the bleakest answers to everything. But you've got a health minister who's so appallingly bad at his job that thousands of people's grandparents died in their care homes and... The only form of justice that the universe can can find fit for him is that people voting on a telephone get to watch him eat insects in a jungle on the other side of the world. Uh, it's, if it's some form of weird rehabilitation, then it's going to backfire because people's memories aren't quite as short as he'd hope. But it's just bloody weird, okay. the idea of watching him in the jungle. I mean, it's the idea of watching Matt Hancock do anything I know. is weird anyway. You know, we saw stills from that video and I wanted to pluck my eyes out. I remember, um, oh God. On that note, okay, to the whole panel, what MP would you make undergo which trial and why? I'm going to start with you, Tom. My least favourite MP by some margin is Bill Cash, but he's quite old and I think it would be quite cruel. And then there's also, um, I have nagging doubts that he's probably quite, maybe a bit tougher than he looks and he might be quite good at it. And that would depress me more than having sent him <laughs> in the first place. 
<laughs> what would you like him to do? What do you think would be appropriate? Eating something, sleeping. Uh, well, with I some would take. I mean, of- I, I'm not a regular watcher of I'm a Celebrity. I mean, uh, I mean, I've seen. I suppose I've seen bits of it, but I would take any. I mean, you wouldn't want to turn down any of the available options. I think they're what you can stick. You can have your head stuck in a bucket of eels. You can be made to eat ostrich anus. Um, you get put in a perspex box with rats. Uh, you have to jump off the top of a tall building. I mean, I would very, very, very happily wish all of those fates on Bill Cash. And actually, I don't even care that he's very old and it might do him great damage. It would be worth it because it wouldn't even come close to the damage that he has done to all of us. Ah, yes. Bobbing for anus and <laughs> veals, one of the one of the forgotten Halloween traditions. How about you, Marie? So I would like Boris Johnson to be forced to live in a flat share with his biggest fans, Nadine Dorries and Jacob Rees-Mogg, for months. <laughs> Just have to live with the <laughs> consequences of his actions. That is brilliantly cruel, I have to say. How about you, Sadfield? I can't top either of those two. <laughs> I, I also haven't seen it. I know about the insects. Um but I, I can't. I'm not quite as imaginative as these two. I can't. I'm gonna possibly. go I'm gonna go simple. I just want Chris Phil to have to spend the next couple of months at Manston without a bed and uh, any access to the outside. I think that is unfair on the refugees while, not suffered enough. While someone comes round every couple of hours and tells him he's got a bit of cheek for complaining. <laughs> Okay, before we go, it's time for our panellists to tell us their escape routes. When we're not glued to PMQs or Beth Rigby or I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here, what occupies our increasingly dark evenings away from the world of politics? Satbir? Trying to figure out Mastodon, which everybody is saying that you have to join now that Twitter is the worst. And I've spent three days trying to figure out how to find anybody I know on there. If someone can tell me how it works, I will I will gladly pay them to sit and help me do that. I don't know. I, I, I mean, I've, it's my escape route as well. I've spent the last few days just sort of, you know, pressing the follow button on loads of people um, and kind of migrating. I mean, I'm not going to leave Twitter. But um, but it's nice to have a life raft, I think, um, a sort of escape hatch. Um, and it seems a much nicer place, I have to say. I, I've yet someone to come up and go, well, I'm sure it will happen, but it hasn't yet. What about you, Marie? Um, so I have been playing Slay the Spire, which is a very nerdy, very fun game, like video game. So it's a roguelike, um, so the format meaning that basically the point of the game is to have to finish the entire game in one go, because whenever you die, you start again at the very beginning. And it's card-based oh, fighting. God. And it's one of those, so I'm at that really sweet spot of uh, gaming where I hate the game more than anything I've ever hated in my entire life, but also just cannot stop playing it because I just need to finish it. Um, and I also went to the cinema to watch The Woman King. Um, I mean, she hasn't been out for a while, you know, the Viola Davies yeah, yeah. Uh, film, which is tremendous. It's one of those where actually, you know, I came out and I was like, what I really wanted was two hours and a bit of pure entertainment. And I got that. You know, I didn't think about anything else for two hours. Was the story very subtle? No, it was not. But, you know, the music was great. The fighting choreography was great. Tremendous. Okay. What's the game called again? Uh, Slay the Spire. Okay. And how about you, Tom? Uh, well, I don't know if you guys saw the trans stand-up comedian Jordan Gray um, get naked on on the, at the end of Friday Night Live on Channel 4 a few weeks ago, which was um, somewhat attention-grabbing. The, the closing of the Friday Night Live show was the five-minute closing of Jordan Gray's award-winning stand-up show. But I saw I went to see the whole show um, in, at the Soho Theatre uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I think you gain a lot from seeing the whole thing as opposed to the climax, shall we say. There's a lot there and um, it's very, very, very enjoyable and very, very, very funny. And there's a reason why Jordan Gray is being discussed as comedy's hottest property. And I would highly recommend going to see it. I think, I think she's in the London Palladium. It may have already been, I'm not sure. Um, and apart from that, um, is anyone else watching 
been engaging in White Lotus Series 2. I absolutely loved the first one. Not yet, not yet. It's it's on the list. I loved the first one. Yeah, as well. yeah. I, I'm struggling um, to look I past the fact it's that... a different location. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's set in Italy. Whole new cast, apart from um, Jennifer Coolidge, who's in both series. I am struggling to look past the fact that the big American jock character is also the actor who accidentally snorts Neil's poo in the Inbetweeners movie. But I'm sure once I've done five more episodes, I will be able to look past that. And I'm very much looking forward to the rest of it because it's had a whole load of five-star reviews. So I'm expecting big things. I wish you the best with that. (laughs) And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thanks to you for listening. We'll see you at the end of the week for another episode. Remember, if you want to help us afford our producers, studios and steady diet of tofu, you can always back us on Patreon. You'll get the podcast early without adverts, exclusive merchandise and a shout out on the show. So here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, along with a thank you to some of our lovely backers. Big shout out from me to Joanne Cat, Thomas Bailey, Michael McCluskey, KG91, Sean Thornton, Rory Hipkin, CV Munner, and Michael Smith. And thank you very much to Matt Bailey, Paul Dalton, Tar B, David Walsh, Fiona McRae, Laura Smith, KHL, and Ned Palmer. And finally, many thanks from me to the very generous Ruth Kroll, Kay Woodruff, JC, surely not, more likely to be Jesus than Jeremy, Tim Sears, John Lockhart, Michael Edmondston, Luke Bennett and Clinton Hefford. We'll see you on Friday. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Alexandre with Maria Leconte and Tom Peck. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And production was by Kasia Tomaszewicz, Jet Gerbertson and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? is a Podmasters production. Music